Hi, everyone, and welcome to the End of the World podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cruz. In this podcast series, we delve into the past, present, and future dynamics of the end of the world and ask why this concept continues to have such cultural resonance. From apocalyptic religious narratives in the Book of Revelation to the zombie apocalypse and doomsday preppers, the end of the world remains an important cultural idea. From our current global coronavirus pandemic to catastrophic wildfires, hurricanes, and widespread social unrest, it's little wonder that people are thinking about the end of the world. This week's show explores questions of religion and the environment, especially questions of climate change. We begin with a look at the concept of nature-based solutions, or NBS, and how a variety of groups are promoting religious engagements through nature-based solutions, from green infrastructure projects and solar panels to efforts like the UN's 2030 Decade of Ecosystem Restoration. We'll also look at how religious worldviews shape local communities' ability to adapt to climate change, looking at case studies from Zambia and Malawi where traditional ecological knowledge, or TEK, and religious practices are coming into conflict with new forms of charismatic Pentecostalism and evangelical Christianity in Africa, which is leading to a loss of climate resilience and intergenerational conflicts over religious ritual and environmental conservation. Finally, we'll look at the role of ecological education in Pope Francis's 2015 Laudato Si encyclical, explore how religions can foster a new ecological awareness, and hopefully help address the global climate crisis. As always, I want to welcome those students listening from my World Religions and Global Issues class at CSU Chico. Thanks for tuning in. So with no further ado, let's jump right into the end of the world. Just a searcher with a passion for the sun. Cruz here. Welcome to our week three lecture for our World Religions and Global Issues class, where we are turning to focus on religion and ecology. Um, just as a reminder this week, we're looking at uh, three articles, the role of environmental and spiritual ethics in galvanizing nature-based solutions, adapting to climate change and shifting landscapes of belief, and uh, an excerpt from Laudato Si Encyclical by Pope Francis. Again, just kind of start with a bit of the big picture overview for this week's lecture. So as you'll recall in our readings for this week, we looked at another way that religion and global issues sort of intersect and play out in the world today uh, with a focus on the environment and climate change. Um, our readings focused on some of the more positive aspects that religion and religious sentiments can play when they're mobilized to help address, for example, uh, the global climate crisis and related environmental challenges and looks in particular at this idea of promoting what are known as nature-based solutions, or NBS, um, to address environmental problems, um, but using the moral power of religion to help encourage nature stewardship as part of these nature-based solutions. Um, we also look at how uh, a number of small villages in um, southeastern Africa and communities there have been adapting to um, both the impacts of Christianity and Western science coming in. I'm looking at a um, number of communities in Bolero and Malawi and in Monza and Zambia. And in these articles, we'll look at the way that Christianity and traditional um, beliefs and ecological practices have both um, worked together and come into conflict in different ways. And with really a focus on what's known as traditional ecological knowledge, or TEK. And we'll think about how um, traditional practices and Christian ideas both can coexist and come into conflict in different situations and explore why that might be the case. Um, well, we also want to keep in mind, as the article points out, that um, some of the most important work going on in the world today, trying to address traditional ecological knowledge, um, comes from indigenous communities who help us think sort of differently about the human nature relationships. Um, that don't require kind of the same grounding in Western logics and uh, ideas of technology and consumption um, that many have criticized as part of this bigger problem. And we'll look at what that might mean and why. 
Then finally, when we're thinking along with Pope Francis in this chapter, we read on uh, ecological awakening and spiritual awakenings and cultural change and think about how do we address what the Pope describes as our unsustainable relationship and lifestyles with the planet and how do we create more uh, sort of new healthy relationships both with each other and with the larger planet we live on. And in particular, Francis will help us think about how can religions help to bring about that kind of change. So that's kind of a big overview of what we're thinking about this week in our lectures. Okay, so in this first article, The Role of Environmental and Spiritual Ethics in Galvanizing Nature-Based Solutions by uh, Abu Mowgli and McCartney, we're kind of diving into this idea of nature-based solutions to think about um, what they are and how environmental and spiritual ethics might play a role in that story. So as you'll recall, our authors argue that we're currently facing unprecedented multiple, multiple crises of climate change, pollution, biodiversity loss, zoonotic diseases, amongst many others. And certainly we can think about the current global coronavirus pandemic as one good example of these zoonotic diseases. Now these changes, our authors note, which have been connected to a whole range of different planetary changes and impacts have often been linked since the 2000s with this concept known as the Anthropocene. This idea that we are now in a new geologic epoch um, dominated by human e impacts and um, human-driven changes. And that this is uh, sort of an idea that really tries to think about impacts after 1950, particularly the jump in industrial resource usage, um, which scholars have been referring to in the last few years as the Great Acceleration. And we'll look at that in just a second. So one of the sets of solutions to try to address these interconnected global problems that we've been exploring, um, as I noted, are what are called nature-based solutions. And our authors describe this as an umbrella term for various approaches that share common features and are designed to protect the natural environment while addressing societal changes. These approaches are inspired to support and work with nature instead of in using its capacity to heal. So the idea is you're working with nature rather than against nature. And these nature-based solutions offer a number of different strategies for how we might try to address global environmental challenges. And they can also draw on existing religious traditions and secular authorities, state, local, international um, bodies, and multilateral agencies. So it's uh, a set of ideas that can work across all sort of different spectrums. So this is briefly the idea of the Great Acceleration. You can see 1750 on the far left side of the chart and 2000 on the right. And basically what that idea is trying to capture is you can see there around 1950, kind of in that post-World War II period, we start to see a, a massive jump uh, globally of a whole range of resource uses um, from financial capital to um, extraction of fish and foods, um, different sorts, increasing use of um, vehicles, increasing CO2, um, CH4, N2O, and many other species um, being impacted by these dramatic changes leading to biodiversity loss, species extinction, and many other things. So this idea of the Anthropocene and the Great Acceleration try to capture um, some of these large global shifts and changes that um, are relatively new to us as a species. Now, um, Abu Mowgli and McCartney point out that since the climate crisis is rooted in a complex web of economic, social, and cultural factors, as well as belief systems, social attitudes, and perceptions, it's worth considering how these ethics impact our ability to address these broader global climate issues. And they argued that the unsustainable socioeconomic systems and consumption and production patterns sorry, that dominate much of the world today arguably reflect these belief systems and social attitudes. So if we want to change this sort of unsustainable model we live in, we need to really look at our belief systems and social attitudes. And as they helpfully remind us, um, if we look, as we saw last week and the week before, you know, roughly 85% of the world identifies with some uh, religious tradition, many of them with one of the three major religious traditions. And so if many people around the world identify with religion and religious beliefs, then our ethics are going to be similarly grounded in those religious traditions. So if we want to address global environmental crisis, um, we need to look at the religious traditions and their ethics 
and how they can contribute to either addressing these problems or perhaps causing some of these problems, as well as think about how do religions and spiritual views um, produce ethics that might help us address global climate change. So for example, as our authors note, religions arose at a time when people were much more intimately connected to the natural world, gaining their livelihoods directly from it. So this is the large part of the time of human history when we were essentially either hunter-gatherers or pastoralists. But as they note, with technological progress, the impacts of globalization, ever-growing urbanization, and increasing mechanization of agriculture and food production, people today, particularly as they note in uh, mega and big cities, more detached from nature than ever. And this importantly, this kind of shift at a global level has created a disconnect between what's contained in these sort of early religious texts and traditions and teachings and the current practices of those that adhere to these religions today. So how do we kind of bridge that gap between um, agrarian derived religions and a modern high-tech world uh, and the mismatches that come with those two? So how do we reconnect these Agurian religious ethics with the world that we know today? Well, our authors argue that in this time of unprecedented global environmental degradation, a new environmental ethic based on universally shared values is required, one that places a greater value on nature and connects to spiritual beliefs. They argue that this means we have to reevaluate the rationality of valuing economic growth and material wealth over the health of natural ecosystems, which obviously we all rely upon for our existence. And also they argue it entails embracing diversity and creating a common notion of a moral duty to protect the environment that will allow to bridge different religious divides and religious communities, while still bringing in their expertise, knowledge, and practices that different faith traditions can provide. So the ultimate aim, they argue, should be that humans learn to live in harmony with nature and with one another. And our author suggests that nature-based solutions are one way that these religious communities can draw upon their own ethical traditions, not only to promote ecological solutions, um, but also to help bring these changes about. And they point to, for example, um, the stewardship traditions in um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and ideas about the belief in interdependence that is found among Buddhists and Hindus. Those are just a couple ways that we can think about those connections. Now, our authors go through a number of different examples in the last few decades that help us think about where religion is being mobilized for environmental issues. So, for example, they highlight the World Charter for Nature in 1982, the UNEP Nine Nations Environment Program, their sole declaration on environmental ethics from 97, the UN Millennium Declaration in 2000, the Tehran Declaration on Environment, Religion, and Culture in 2001, and as you'll recall, there were a number of other declarations that came out around that same period from different traditions, and the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development from 2016. And obviously, we could cite many more, but these are a few that they highlighted. And they also talk about some of the partnerships we've seen, for example, one between the UNEP, the Parliament of World Religions, and the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology, which uh, produced the what was known as Earth and Faith, a book of reflection for Act in 2000, which has then been updated just this past year um, into a new document called Faith for Earth, a call to act, call for action, um, which is essentially kind of an updating of the contents of that original document from 2000. And they also point to other examples, such as the fact that we're now in the UN Decade of Ecosystem Restoration, um, which began in 2021 and goes to 2030 as well as uh, efforts, for example, to support the 2015 um, Paris Climate Agreement. So all of these for the authors are different examples of how religion and um, environmental issues are kind of being woven together. And they remind us, importantly, part of what makes nature-based solutions so um, appealing is that they're flexible, adapted, systemic, and grounded in the best environmental science and knowledge, um, which allows them to be properly implemented, not only to create benefits for people, but also for the planet. So really looking at how do we use locally based um, environmental dynamics to come up with um, creative solutions for those problems. And they, you know, we could think about, there's literally thousands of nature-based solutions that we could explore. Uh, just a few to highlight, to give you some ideas. Think about restoration and green infrastructure projects, which could range from rural reforestation to urban green space creation. 
um, implementing coastal shoreline restoration projects such as um, either restoring or um, repairing damaged mangroves, wetlands, and marshes, which particularly in coastal areas play a critical role um, in flood prevention and mitigation. We could look at efforts to remove dams and restore natural waterways and repairing corridors. You can think about examples of installing green roofs and promoting wastewater recycling and composting, and encouraging the use of more permaculture and organic agricultural practices. Um, alternative energy systems such as solar, wind, geothermal, uh, microhydro, or run of river um, installations where you're not blocking the entire river itself. And reef recovery projects and various other marine habitat creation and restoration projects. All of these um, work with the existing natural systems and their dynamics to try to um, elevate and increase our sort of interplay with them in order to get more benefits out while at the same time helping, in many of these cases, um, to actually try to clean up and restore um, natural systems. So here's just a brief video looking at a few examples of how people are thinking about these nature-based solutions and climate change. When I think about my childhood, on the corner of my street, we had a great big cherry blossom tree. And I've always thought of those images and I like to think that even high-level CEOs sitting somewhere in some office have this and they think about their childhood and they think, oh yeah, there was that rainforest. And I would describe nature-based solutions as basically a return because I think we all have this innate caring for nature. That's what we all have to go back to. Nature-based solutions, it's not actually describing something new. It's describing making use of the services that nature provides us to help address climate change. What we see now is I think the realization that all the warnings from the scientists are becoming reality, but we all have also to see the opportunity of tackling climate change, also in terms of green jobs, doing things in a slightly different way. And now it's time for everybody in the world to think about nature-based solutions. They are a good ground to grow and scale. When you think about agriculture, it's probably the biggest opportunity that we have for addressing climate change. It's right beneath our feet, it's on the ground, it's everywhere, not only for carbon, but also for sustainable development. It's a huge opportunity. We need models and instruments that help demystify some of this, help reduce perceived risk, and the use of nature-based solutions become much clearer. And we're seeing a lot of appetite from particularly the multilateral financial institutions to help with that. Tempo de actuar. It is five minutes to midnight in the global climate emergency. In short, we need to make national commitments more ambitious in sectors such as nature-based solutions. The Paris Agreement is built on nationally determined contributions, NDCs. And if countries are looking into their climate contributions, they must talk to the farmers, they must talk to the food sector and factor that in. And I believe agriculture must be centerpiece of the NDCs. So now we have this upcoming UN decade on ecosystem restoration, and we call it the most important decade of the century, which is until 2030. We've got to do something about climate action, but we've also got to create the world that we want. I think the landscape approach is one great opportunity going forward with nature-based solutions. So you have to look across all spheres and say agriculture, forestry, local economy, rural development, food industry, so that you actually are able to work with the whole system and not one piece. And then let's work with Earth and not against it. So it gives you a sense of how um, some people at kind of a larger international level, particularly through the United Nations, are thinking about these ideas of nature-based solutions. And one of the real benefits about these, as our authors note, is that they can be implemented by religious organizations, by governments, by international and intergovernmental agencies, but also even individual communities and cities. But unfortunately, as we saw there at the very end of that video, um, there are two real big stumbling blocks to more effective use of um, nature-based solutions. First one being just kind of a common problem, which is a lack of funding that many um, efforts and initiatives face. And the other one is that at this point, there's still a lot of weak support from both national governments and private investors um, in some of these solutions. 
But yet these nature-based solutions offer numerous opportunities to forge new sustainable futures, um, one that can still account for uh, sort of four key dimensions described in a lot of sustainable development literature, which are social, economic, environmental, and cultural um, dimensions. Now, fortunately, um, as our authors remind us, we don't need to wait on governments or international agencies to be able to promote nature-based solutions. Um, in fact, existing religious institutions can use their resources to start working on these solutions now. For example, in religious schools and places of worship and properties or lands controlled by religious institutions and through other resources that they might have access to as religious groups. And perhaps equally important as from those um, possibilities is that religious groups can use their own influence to help encourage and promote environmental efforts amongst their kind of followers. Now our authors also remind us that many conservation movements um, have included ties to religious organizations or were inspired in some way by religious beliefs and teachings. And they note that there's a clear history of environmental considerations within both uh, religion and folk traditions that they suggest we can see reflected in scriptures and practice, uh, many of which go back to the very early origins of religion. And these ideas, precisely these ideas can be drawn on today to help with not only nature-based solutions, but many larger global climate issues. So just a few examples, um, some that our authors talked about and some others um, that are relevant to think about where we can see these sort of intersections of religion and environmental issues. So they mentioned ancient Sanskrit texts, the Vedas and others that emphasize ethical relations between humans and nature. We can think about beliefs in nonviolence towards sentient beings or ahimsa, which is found in both Buddhism and Jainism. We can think about the Muslim belief in humans as trustees to Allah or to God, uh, Khalifa, and our obligations to care for the world. And the Islamic practice of setting reserved areas aside known as Hima that can be sort of designated as sacred and protected areas. Some examples such as Ethiopian Orthodox churches creating um, sacred forest groves, particularly in rural areas. Um, things like the Japanese Shinto belief in spirits or kami that are seen to be inhabiting special areas, especially trees and forests um, that are considered sacred. Um, we can look at examples such as the Maronite Church of Lebanon and their practices to protect the Harissa Cedar Forest in Lebanon. Um, we can look at EcoSeek's uh, efforts with Gru Nanak Sacred Forest and projects there that try to take a more kind of holistic, integrated or interconnected view of human nature relations. And we can look at Jewish celebrations such as Tubashvat, the New Year of Trees, um, and religious tree planting rituals and other kind of food and agriculture based um, activities that go around Tubashvat um, as one more of these different examples of how religion and ecology um, can be integrated or in some ways have been integrated for a long time. So just a few kind of popular culture examples we can think about something like the Golden Temple Vegetarian Cookbook, um, Feast, looking at simple food and reflections from Christian traditions, or something like um, Wukwan's Korean Temple Food, looking at the kind of rich integration um, of simple foods and spiritual practices. So we can kind of think about all the different ways um, that these religious practices and environmental issues intersect um, and draw on those possible resources. So as our authors also point out, there's an especially rich tradition around caring for and protecting trees and forests, which goes back probably to the birth of many religious traditions. And we can kind of see the importance of that in the fact that there are many religious shrines or pilgrimage sites that are either in or near um, ancient forests that are considered sacred. So a few examples our authors talk about where we're seeing these kind of ideas put into action include the Interfaith Rainforest Initiative, which tries to bring religious traditions together to protect tropical rainforests from destruction, and the Living Chapel, an effort to create living sacred spaces that are rooted in sort of interfaith religious practices to help both promote sustainable sort of living, sustainable development ideas, as well as peace building efforts between religious communities. And there are a number of other different areas of our sort of daily lives that we could think about where nature-based solutions and religion and ecology come into play. So food consumption from, as we just looked at, vegetarian and temple food to questions of food security and food waste. How do you, for example, reduce um, the waste that's produced when religious organizations get together and hold events, picnics or dinners and things like that. Um, broader ideas of sustainable living from 
um, China's effort to try to develop an ecological civilization to reducing waste at religious gatherings. Greening places of worship is another important one, which could be as simple as adding solar panels to existing infrastructure to promoting recycling and gardening um, on sort of religious grounds. All these are sort of broader examples of what scholars talk about is the greening of religion, or the idea that religious traditions and practices um, can help us live a more ecologically responsible life. So here's just a few examples of these church forests in Ethiopia that I was mentioning. And you can see how essentially by putting up a fence um, around these religious areas, they're able to um, protect an important part of the landscape that many of, uh, particularly in parts of um, Sahara and, and Sub-Saharan Africa, um, where you have extremely dry areas and a lot of pastoral communities, um, protecting these trees becomes especially important. Now, most of these practices, as I noted, have been used for millennia, not only in various religious traditions, but especially in um, indigenous communities who, by and large, wherever we look around the world, um, live in ways that show and demonstrate a much greater respect for and sort of integration with the natural world, um, which over a long sort of course of time has led to the protection of many important biodiversity spots on the planet. And we can see this reflected, for example, in the fact that Although indigenous communities occupy less than 20% of the planet, um, they are sort of stewards and safeguarding uh, more than 80% of the remaining biodiversity in the world, particularly in um, tropical rainforest areas and in some cases even temperate rainforests. So as our authors argue, overall there's a close correlation between areas of biological and cultural diversity and most indigenous populations found in areas of megadiversity. These species diverse environments in which indigenous people live are deeply tied to productive activities and spiritual values. And so seen from that perspective, all creation is sacred and the sacred and secular are inseparable from belief systems preventing the over-exploitation of resources. So really the sort of ideas of kinship and concentric ethics, and many other examples we could look at that create a fundamentally different sort of worldview in relationship between humans and the natural world. So these different kinds of traditional ecological knowledge or TEK are an important aspect of nature-based solutions and are certainly central to some of the more creative thinking about how do we develop resilient and adaptive systems in the face of these growing climate uncertainties. And our authors argue that TEK can also show us how to live more in harmony with the natural world around us rather than trying to force nature to fit into kind of our goals and visions. And these shifts in thinking are really key um, to why traditional ecological knowledge is so important today. Okay, in our second article, Adapting to Climate Change and Shifting Landscapes of Belief by Murphy, Tembo, Fieri, Yeroquim, and Grimmel, we sort of shift gears to look at these two case studies from Zambia and Malawi and looking at um, the sort of interplay and tensions between um, traditional religious beliefs and practices and um, sort of influence of Christianity in particular. So as I mentioned, our authors are looking at sort of climate change adaptation in um, communities in Bolero and Malawi and in Monza and Zambia to try to help us think through um, what happens when traditional religious beliefs and practices encounter other religious traditions, in this case, Christianity. Um, and in this particular article, they're looking at um, field research and ethnographic work that was done in 26 different villages in these two areas. You can see on the map there, Bolero in the sort of northwest portion of Malawi, and Monza in the sort of south, central southwestest um, part of Zambia, um, close to um, the Zambian, Zimbabwe, Zambia border. Now, as Murphy and co-authors argue, social and individual values and worldviews are often determined by religion and spirituality, and these influence decisions about uh, whether and how communities will adapt, while Religion has been positively associated with adaptive capacities in many cases through enhancing social capital. At least research suggests that much. Um, but as they also note, when we think about kind of at a broader global scale, the vulnerability to climate change tends to be greatest in the parts of the world where the religion is already very important in daily life. So there's an important kind of connection between um, strong religiosity and um, a greater vulnerability to climate change. And we'll look at some data on that in a second. Um, it's also important to note in the context of these specific cases where we're looking at traditional African religious beliefs and practices that go back millennia, that Islam and Christianity are relatively new practices to many of these areas. 
Um, but despite that fact, by 2000, um, the number of Christians in Southern African nations had increased over 70% and Muslims over 20%. And that has also led to a rapid decline in traditional African religious beliefs um, over this past century. And as our authors talk about, we can think about sort of two major waves that have come through. Um, they might be slightly different depending on which part of the African continent we're looking at. Um, but in this area, kind of the southeastern uh, continent, the first wave was really in the 1800s um, when European and American um, colonizers and missionaries tried to kind of bring Christian civilization to the dark continent, as they often referred to it. And secondly, in sort of a second set of later, later waves that some people would date to the 70s or 80s, but were kind of evident by the 1990s, when we started to see the Africanization of Christianity and particularly the rise of African independent churches and kind of a real blossoming of Pentecostal and charismatic forms of Christianity that really took hold in much of Africa. But as our authors also note, uh, many African traditional religious beliefs continue to exist alongside both Christianity and Muslim beliefs, which has led what religious scholars refer to as the process of synchronism or syncretism, where we see kind of hybrid forms of religious beliefs being created by individuals who kind of draw from different traditions um, without following strictly just sort of one set of ideas. So we can see in the two charts here, on the left you see on the top areas that are more or less vulnerable to climate change. So those in the kind of red are the most vulnerable. And then below we can see the sort of importance of religion in daily life with green being least important and red being most important. So what we see is that for most of the African continent, but particularly for the sub-Saharan part of Africa, um, religion is extremely important and climate vulnerability is also extremely high. So again, as our authors were noting, and then we can see on that chart on the left, um, basically plotting these same ideas. Again, you see both Malawi and, and Zambia are high on both climate change vulnerability and importance of religion in daily life. So if we take that argument seriously that religion is important for dealing with climate adaptation, um, areas where religion is more important and climate change vulnerabilities are higher um, should be good places to try to see what's going on with these dynamics. Now, these sort of local uh, practices and tensions have given this this challenge where you have um, local environmental challenges and older animistic religious practices and rituals coming into conflict with more dogmatic monotheistic beliefs brought in by Islam and Christianity. So for example, as our authors noted, <clears throat> traditional belief systems are often intricately intertwined with traditional ecological knowledge in which spirituality is rooted within the ancestral spirit world and built from adaptive processes of trial and error of living with the land. So TEK is a knowledge practice belief complex, they, they argue, that has long been the organizing attractor around which the culture and practice of rural community life has persisted. And as our authors also point out, there are sort of three key aspects of traditional ecological knowledge and its relation to local adaptive capacities. So these include um, the qualitative monitoring of change for early warning by individuals or communities. So recognizing that, for example, um, certain plant species maybe are appearing earlier or that there's less of a certain food source than there had been that past season. Uh, second, of these sort of TEK capacities is the protection of important refuges that facilitate recovery after disturbances, such as sacred groves, um, taboos against using specific plants and animals that will allow areas to kind of cope and recover more quickly. And then finally, the practice of rituals um, that help to pass on institutional memory and facilitate um, communal responses to pressures. So the challenge our authors argue that many traditional communities face from outside religions like Christianity and Islam is that they're not only often not responsive to these local dynamics, but they can often be hostile to them as well. And this leads to a kind of a breakdown of what had been former successful conservation practices because they're now conflicting with these new outside religious beliefs and practices. And our case studies in both Malawi and Zambia clearly kind of highlight what these tensions look like. So the two case studies we looked at give us some specific examples where changing religious beliefs have affected the adaptive capacity of rural communities. And at the same time, they show us that um, we can have communities where you have multiple belief systems um, held. And 
sometimes they'll be in uh, sort of working cooperatively, other times they'll be in conflict. But regardless, the fact that these belief systems are there does have a, a noticeable effect on climate-sensitive livelihood practices, particularly as our authors argue related to food production and, and associated communal rituals. So for example, the researchers found that cultural changes caused by changing religious beliefs between generations, which was particularly important, does impact the adaptive capacities of communities to respond to climate change. In particular, one impact they found um, changes were being driven by kind of hostile evangelicals or charismatics, particularly as they noted embodied by a growing number of Pentecostals in some of the communities um, who basically outright rejected these older traditional religious beliefs and practices. And that hostility has disrupted traditional ecological um, practices, traditional, you know, TEK, um, by substituting often in their place a reliance on new kinds of Western technology and agricultural practices, um, which aren't connected to kind of long-standing traditional beliefs and um, religious traditions, and are often brought in by these outside faith-based organizations. So as our authors argue, the importance of TEK in building adaptive capacity is well established. However, in both communities, our findings suggest that changing beliefs are undermining the effectiveness of TEK management practices. And they note, for example, that interviewees noted concern that the expansion of Christian religions is affecting the preservation of TEK practices, and particularly through non-adherence to taboos deemed important for preserving uh, systems resilience, and they noted and particularly on the case um, or regarding young people who are no longer sort of respecting these taboos. So if we look at kind of side by side these two case studies, we see that um, in Malawi, Bolero is a densely populated rural area that's about 95% Christian and largely made up of the Tambuka ethnicity. Um, some of the risks they face include environmental degradation, climate variability, erratic rainfall, droughts, land shortages, food insecurity, um, and the constant threat from HIV and AIDS. Um, there's been strong organized social relations and leaders historically. Um, there's also sort of a long-standing set of traditional religious taboos around eating certain foods, um, protecting certain sacred trees, and emphasizing group identity as more important than individual identity. And they noted how uh, Chuta, which was the local name for God in some of these communities, is seen as being responsible for disasters, um, but can also be kind of um, invoked or interceded through the ancestors to help bring rain when needed. They talked about using the Singongo or medicine men to drive out evil spirits who are preventing rain or possibly causing sickness um, if other sort of rituals don't seem to be successful. And they also noted that historically the Timbuka had a good relationship, or at least a relatively good relationship by historical standards, um, with their Presbyterian Livingston missionaries um, who came into the area of what's now modern-day Malawi, um, who in general were more respectful of local traditions and practices than in other areas. Now, by contrast, if we look at Monza in Zambia, and this area is mostly agricultural and pastoral area, about 87% Christian and 12% traditional, um, made up of different uh, Baitonga or Tonga ethnicities. And some of the risks there include problems, again, with rain-fed crops and agriculture, um, lack of agricultural grazing land, particularly for cattle, um, and the constant threat of droughts. Um, unlike with um, Malawi, there was never kind of the same level of organized state or social relations and centralized leadership as we saw in the Malawi case. Um, they talked about how the Tonga Rain Shrine, the Melende, um, is really important as a place where rain spirits live and are key to um, two of the Luindi rain rituals, which take place in July and August, that correspond to important um, agricultural cycles. In fact, the, the region itself derives its name from a former chief, Monza, um, who was seen as a prophet who was able to control rain um, through the Luindi ritual. Now, importantly, these Luindi uh, rituals not only forecast rain for the coming seasons so people know when to um, sort of do their planting, um, but they also serve as a way to thank local ancestral spirits and um, divinity amongst sort of tribal um, belief systems. So remember, we've got lots of different tribes coming together here, and that kind of serves as a unifying force in a certain way around these practices, sort of reinforcing communal identities. Um, but unfortunately, unlike with the case of Malawi and Tonga, 
uh, or sort of in Zambia with the Tonga, they had very contentious relationships with, at the time, the British South African Company um, and Christian missionaries who both tried to undermine um, and resist local religious leadership and practices, including um, arresting and killing a number of important figures in the past. So very different relationships to um, both internal and outside dynamics. Now, if we think about how uh, religion and ecology play out in these two cases, what we see is that in Bolero and Malawi, there's largely been a smooth coexistence and integration of both traditional religious practices and Christianity. And in fact, traditional leaders noted that there's a lack of tension between the different belief systems. Instead of being kind of competing, they often offer sort of different ways of approaching or addressing problems and forms of knowledge. And these were kind of associated with traditional ecological knowledge on one hand, as sort of the native traditions and sort of Western science being this kind of new, brought in outside Christian idea. Um, importantly, village elders often served both as traditional religious leaders and church leaders, which helped to legitimate both sets of practices um, and allowed them to exist more sort of co-harmoniously. And importantly, they noted that the faith-based organizations um, are not necessarily always viewed as sort of outsiders bringing in outside information, um, but also helping to bring in new kind of scientific insights, such as the authors note um, in the past, um, many in the Bolero villages thought that, for example, um, droughts or climate variability was caused by um, ancestral spirits who might have been upset with the village. And now they can understand that maybe there's some bigger climate story going on that's not just about sort of local issues and um, practices. Um, by contrast, in Mons and Zambia, what we see is deep conflicts between traditional religions and Christianity, particularly Pentecostal and evangelical forms of Christianity. And there, Western science and agricultural techniques are seen as in opposition to traditional ecological knowledge and religious rituals, particularly a Lewindi ritual. Um, as the noted, rain forecast, so um, villages are told, you know, don't rely on these rituals to tell you when the rain's going to come, you know, rely on the meteorological society and their predictions. Um, but as they noted, the rain forecasts are only in English, which is not useful for many people who don't understand or speak English. And often that same information is not reliable either. Um, so they noted in times people have relied on that and then um, there wasn't going to be a drought according to the forecast and there was. Um, so it made people um, lose crops and face even more hardships. And perhaps most importantly, though, they noted that Tonga uh, sort of followers of traditional Lewindi rituals have often been victimized by Christians called devil worshipers and fetishes and risk communal shunning and even expulsion from the church, which um, can have a major impact on individuals within that community if they're now excluded from much of communal life. So as our authors note here, tensions between belief systems emanated from the practice of rituals, the use of Western science and technology, and seasonal forecasting of rain, and between generations. So community members, again, associated Christian religions with certain knowledge forms, and specifically Western science, and particularly, as they note, through the presence of faith-based organizations who are focused on agricultural development and climate change adaptation. So you can see just a few examples here from the Luindi Gonda, which are the ceremonies that take place in Zambia in July and October. And these are just a few images from festivals between 2015 and 2018. You can see in the top left there, um, one of the shrines where the sorghum beer and other offerings are being made to the ancestral spirits. Um, you can see in the bottom right and in the center, some of the local tribal chiefs who are leading ceremonies um, at the beginning of uh, different processions. At the top, you can see um, one of the many um, groups there that have come to do dances as part of the ceremonies and rituals. So just to give you a little bit of a sense of um, what these are like, here's a brief clip from one of these uh, Luinda ceremonies in Zambia. The Maja TV channel crew went to Monza for the Luindi Gonda ceremony, a traditional ceremony for the Tonga people which takes place every year. Gonda is a Tonga word which means thick forest. 
The forest is near the area where the ceremony takes place, and this place is very sacred for the Tonga people because this is where the two Tonga chiefs were buried. And this place is also a place where they communicate with their ancestral spirits. So as our authors also noted when they were interviewing elders in the different villages, they noted, for example, that certain local sacred tree species play an important role in um, retaining moisture for crop production during periods of drought, which allows farmers to continue growing during extreme weather periods. Um, but as more young people begin to embrace Christianity, they're no longer paying attention to local taboos, such as not cutting down these tree species, which has led to an increase in deforestation, um, more problems with drought, and other related agricultural problems, um, which traditional religious advocates in part blamed on the fact that the young people are both um, neglecting these taboos and no longer paying kind of the respects to ancestral spirits and through these ancestral traditions and rituals. So, for example, as one Tonga elder noted, I was in the process of initiating my son as a priest of the shrine, but he is lost into evangelical churches. He is no longer cooperating. He considers the shrine evil. And as the authors noted, this trend is especially strong where charismatic Pentecostal churches uh, are growing or are already dominant. So in Bolero, there's evidence that communities recognize the utility of pluralistic beliefs and practices in livelihood activities around food production. Um, merging the blending beliefs and practices in different situations. Um, in Mons, and by contrast, changing religious beliefs have introduced tensions around the practices of TEK, which are playing out in how associated knowledge types are considered valid or not in agricultural decision-making um, and related practices with direct implications for livelihood decisions. So as our authors suggest, culture here approached through the lens of religious beliefs and practices plays an important role in adaptive capacity, but it's not static. We find that in communities holding multiple belief systems, adaptive capacity is largely determined by the manner in which belief systems coexist. And we saw that very clearly in the difference between Bolero and Monza. Religious beliefs have tangible influences on lived practices of individuals and communities and vice versa, and are an important determinant of adaptive capacity. In the context of changing religious beliefs, Adaptive capacity will be determined by how epistemological and intergenerational frictions are negotiated by both individuals and communities, and ultimately how different forms of knowledge are valued, accepted, and integrated. Okay, that wraps up the first part of this week three lecture, and we'll continue with um, part two um, very soon. Okay, thanks everybody. Hi everybody, welcome to our second part of our week three lecture for world religions and global issues class looking at intersections of religion and environmental issues uh, this final article we're looking at today is the Laudato Si encyclical from Pope Francis um, also referred to as on care for our common home which came out in 2015 uh, we read chapter six out of uh, Laudato Si for this week and in that we get a perspective uh, another in relation to the two we've already looked at on how religion and environmental issues can be um, thought about and intersected. Um, in this case, with an emphasis on issues of ecological education and particularly the role of spirituality, um, as Francis understands it, in bringing about a global change in consciousness. As Francis writes, we lack an awareness of our common origin, of our mutual belonging, and of a future to be shared with everyone. This basic awareness would enable the development of a new conviction and attitudes and forms of life. A great cultural, spiritual, and educational challenge stands before us, and it will demand that we set out on the long path of renewal. So Francis argues in what we read for this week that this global urge to buy and consume more stuff, which really is at the heart of this process of economic globalization that we looked at in the very first week of class, is also part of the problem, according to Francis, because it creates this false sense of freedom through consumer choice. When in reality, he argues, those who are really free are the sort of very small minority who wield economic and financial power. So part of the problem, he suggests, is that when people become self-centered and self-enclosed, their greed increases. And the emptier a person's heart is, he argues, the more he or she needs to buy things, own and consume, as we try to fill that sort of void in our heart it becomes almost impossible to accept the limits imposed by reality. In this horizon, a genuine sense of the common good also disappears, which is a big concern for him. 
obsession with a consumerist lifestyle, above all, when few people are capable of maintaining it, can only lead to violence and mutual destruction. And so this is a common theme um, that we'll see throughout all of Laudato Si, um, as well as the chapter we read for this week, um, which is this thinking about how do we shift fundamentally our consciousness and the way we relate to kind of the broader world around us. So thinking about how we change our lifestyles, for example, Francis argues one uh, possible mechanism of doing that is through using our economic and political power through boycotts and other kinds of consumer actions. Um, precisely because uh, powerful individuals, when they feel that kind of pinch of economic loss through boycotts and other actions, there's a greater incentive for them to change what they're doing in response to these social pressures. But ultimately, um, you can only achieve so much with those kind of superficial measures, and we really need to go deeper. And so Francis argues, an awareness of the gravity of today's cultural and ecological crisis must be translated into new habits. Many people know that our current progress and the mere amassing of things and pleasure are not enough to give meaning and joy to the human heart, yet they feel unable to give up what the market sets before them. In those countries which should be making the greatest changes in consumer habits, which obviously would be the United States and you know, the major industrial developed countries, young people have a new ecological sensitivity and a generous spirit, and some of them are making admirable efforts to protect the environment. We certainly see this with, for example, youth climate marches and the Fridays for the Future and other related climate strikes. But as Francis notes, at the same time, these young individuals have grown up in a milieu of extreme consumerism and influence, which makes it difficult to develop other habits. So one of the really the biggest challenges, Francis argues, is that how do we break through these consumer habits and develop a new mindset? And this is where, for Francis and others, ecological education becomes really central um, as one of the solutions to help try to address these challenges. So early environmental education, um, as he notes, was often really focused on just basic kind of scientific facts. Um, but over the time, so let's say maybe since the 70s or the 80s, um, environmental education has evolved to include a critique of the myths of a modernism, sort of the modernity that we think of, grounded in this idea of utilitarian mindset. So individualism, a belief in unlimited progress, competition, consumerism, and the kind of what we would describe as sort of neoliberal free market economics today. But it also, he argues, seeks to restore the various levels of ecological equilibrium, establishing harmony with both ourselves and with others in relation to nature and other living creatures, and even, he argues, with God. So Francis refers to kind of this process as developing an ethics of ecology or becoming sort of ecological citizens or developing an ecological citizenship, which he argues in a sort of other parts of Laudato Si, um, we can start to put into practice through what he describes as an integral ecology. And this is important for Francis and others because he argues laws and regulations can only get us so far and they don't really address the root problem of climate change. So only by cultivating sound virtues, he argues, will people be able to make a selfless ecological commitment. A person who can afford to spend and consume more but regularly uses less heating and wears warmer clothes shows the kind of convictions and attitudes which help to protect the environment. And he lists a number of other examples as well, um, some of which we've already talked about in the first part of this lecture. These kind of acts, Francis argues, have their own value and can actually contribute to kind of larger systemic changes um, and can take place anywhere in both religious and secular educational settings and other spaces. So as he argues in the Laudato Si excerpt we read for this week, by learning to see and appreciate beauty, we learn to reject self-interested pragmatism. If someone has learned to stop, not learned to stop and admire something beautiful, we should not be surprised that that person treats everything as an object to be used and abused without scruple. And importantly, he notes, if we want to bring about deep change, we need to realize that certain mindsets really do influence our behavior. Our efforts at education will be inadequate and ineffectual unless we strive to promote new ways of thinking about human beings, life, society, and our relationships with nature. Otherwise, the paradigm of consumerism will continue to advance with the help of the media and the highly effective workings of the market. And we can see this idea of the relationship between kind of mindsets and influences on our behaviors. Um, when we look to the case studies from Zambia and from Malawi, thinking about how you know that tension between traditional uh, ecological practices and religions through TEK and Christianity, particularly charismatic and evangelical forms of uh, Pentecostalism, 
changed people's ability to adapt to local environmental responses and even changed the way they thought about um, possible ways of adapting. So that would be another way we can think about the way that our sort of you know mindset or worldview, the kind of broader social environments we're embedded in, um, have an important impact on how we think about a whole range of issues, environmental as well as others. So what we really need, Francis argues, is an ecological conversion that's driven by faith and spiritual conviction, which can address both our sort of interior mental world and also our relationships with the external environment. So as he notes, so what they all need is an ecological conversion, whereby the effects of their encounter with Jesus Christ become evident in their relationships with the world around them. Living our vocation to be protectors of God's handiwork is essential to a life of virtue. It's not an optional or secondary aspect of our Christian experience. So really you see here the, the importance for Francis of trying to not just think about the way our religious understandings, at least in the Christian context here, um, might allow us to think about our relationship differently, but that we actually have sort of a, a positive religious obligation to put those beliefs into action in the world around us. And as an example of what this might look like, he points to St. Francis of Assisi, and often dubbed the patron saint of nature, and who's often celebrated as sort of a perfect embodiment of kind of a religious expression of care for nature, and even seeing sort of the natural world as a divine expression of God's sort of creative abilities and honoring it because of that. So you commonly see pictures of St. Francis, both sort of contemporarily and in earlier sort of in his times, um, depicted sort of with many animals uh, sort of all interacting together. So the sheep, um, in this case, the lamb and the wolf, the fox and the rabbit, um, species that might normally not be um, interacting together, seen in this kind of harmonious way. Uh, one common example is pointed to is his Canticle of the Creatures. Um, you can see a couple excerpts here from that where he says, Praise be you, my Lord, through sister moon and stars. In heaven you have formed them, lightsome and precious and fair. And praise be you, my Lord, through brother wind through air and cloud, through calm and every weather by which you sustain your creatures. Praise be you, my Lord, through sister water, so very useful and humble, precious and chaste. Praise be you, my Lord, through our sister Mother Earth, who sustains us and directs us, bringing forth all kinds of fruits and colored flowers and herbs. Um, so this would be the kind of expressions of um, nature reverence that Francis sees as being really part of an important uh, long historical lineage within Christian traditions. So when we think about this idea of ecological conversion, Pope Francis talks about certain attitudes that he sees as helping to promote I and mean, bring about this kind of ecological conversion, such as uh, feelings of gratitude and generosity and recognition that the world is God's gift to um, humans or to everyone really, not just humans. Um, a loving awareness that we're all connected to all of the sort of life around us and what he describes as a splendid universal communion. Seeing all of creation is reflecting a part of the divine with a message for us to be able to learn. And finally, recognizing that God created sort of nature and the universe or the cosmos more broadly uh, perfectly and that humans have no place or right to try to change and tinker with this natural order. So as he argues, Christian spirituality proposes a growth marked by moderation and the capacity to be happy with little. It's a return to that simplicity which allows us to stop and appreciate the small things, to be grateful for the opportunities which life affords us, and to be spiritually detached from what we possess and not to succumb to the sadness for what we lack. And you can actually hear interesting echoes here of sort of the non-attachment um, philosophies you find in um, Hinduism to some degree, but in Buddhism um, probably most clearly. So he notes, this implies avoiding the dynamic of dominion and the mere accumulation of pleasures. Once we lose our humility and become enthralled with the possibility of limitless mastery over everything, we inevitably end up harming society and the environment. Many people today sense a profound imbalance which drives them to frenetic activity and makes them feel busy in a constant hurry, which in turn leads them to ride roughshod over everything around them. So Francis is hoping this ecological conversion can help kind of push back and change that um, broad global trend that he's pointing to here. But ultimately, it's important, he reminds us, to think that um, ecological conversion is ultimately about sort of an attitude of the heart and changing our, our, our heart, as it were. Um, and it's a recognition of the many ways that we are sort of living together and how we can harm people and the planet 
and live in ways that, that are not sustainable. But by slowing down, learning to use less, and embracing an ecological lifestyle, we can begin to change how we relate to the planet and to each other, he suggests. Now, ultimately, these changes must happen, he suggests, and others obviously argue as well, if we want to ensure a future for everyone on this planet. And this is really the central message of Laudato Si. Um, we're facing a climate crisis, and we need to utilize and mobilize all available resources, um, of which religion is one of the central possible avenues to bring about global um, action on climate change. So as he argues, we must regain the conviction that we need one another, that we have a shared responsibility for others in the world, and that being good and decent are worth it. We've had enough of immorality and the mockery of ethics, goodness, faith, and honesty. It's time to acknowledge that lighthearted superficiality has done us no good. When the foundations of social life are corroded, what ensues are battles over conflicting interests, new forms of violence and brutality, and obstacles to the growth of a genuine culture of care for the environment. And we've certainly seen the way that these sort of battles over conflicting interests and new forms of religious violence and brutality have emerged in our readings last week around religious violence and um, religious um, sort of militant religious activism. So he suggests that these beliefs, when put into practice through things like ecological conversion and ideas of integral ecology, not only can help promote peace and social harmony, but can also foster more broadly what he refers to as a culture of care. So as Francis suggests, to put these ideas into practice, we don't have to become directly involved in politics and government, although certainly some individuals find that useful, but we can find many different ways to make these changes. So he suggests, for example, um, we can show concern for a public place like a building or a fountain or an abandoned monument or a landscape. And we can strive to protect or restore or improve or beautify it as something that belongs to everyone. So the sense of the common good and the communal um, benefits. And around these community actions, he argues relationships develop or are recovered and a new social fabric emerges. These community actions, when they express self-giving love, can also become intense spiritual experiences. So you think about the way in a kind of a Christian context that um, some mission work or something like Habitat for Humanity both brings people together around a common project um, that has a benefit for the community, but can also be deeply uh, meaningful for individuals participating in that experience. Now, Francis also points out that in Christianity, especially through the Eucharist, so the bread and wine, um, the sacraments, we are intimately connected to the natural world. Also through the use of oil and holy water, through practices like baptism, those are all regrounding us in these sort of natural elements, as well as the many references to fire and flames and color within um, not just certainly Christianity, but many, um, in fact, almost all religious traditions. Um, those are all important elements in one way or another. And as Francis notes, water, oil, fire, and colors are taken up in all their symbolic power and incorporated into our acts of praise. Encountering God, he suggests, does not mean fleeing from this world or turning our back on nature. So kind of in conclusion here, Francis reminds us that ideas like the Sabbath and the idea of a day of rest are central to both Jewish and Christian religious practices. In fact, they have their origins in sort of valuing rest, both for people and animals on the land, which we'll remember this is really where these religious practices first began. They came out of the need to create a time for draft animals to rest, to let the fields lay fallow and recover, so that we didn't overwork and exhaust the land and um, other creatures. But these were also importantly times of celebration, often related to harvest cycles and planting cycles. And they really emphasize these ideas of community solidarity and mutual aid, people coming together to work for kind of their collective good. So as Francis reminds us, rest opens our eyes to the larger picture and gives us renewed sensitivity to the rights of others. And so the day of rest centered on the Eucharist and the Christian traditions sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us to greater concern for nature and the poor. And hopefully such reflections and practices, Francis suggests, will help us to realize that everything is interconnected, which in turn invites us to develop a spirituality based around that sense of a global solidarity. And it's really in such expressions, Francis argues, that we might be able to form the basis of a new spiritual awakening that he called for at the opening of this essay, and sort of a renewed appreciation for the value of nature and our place within it. 
And in this way, we get a really a clear glimpse um, of how religious traditions, in this case Christianity and particularly Roman Catholicism, can be mobilized to bring about these ideas of ecological conversion and integral ecology in order to help address this sort of large looming global environmental crisis embodied in climate change. Well, that wraps up our show for this week. Next week, we'll turn to our final class focus on religion and the pandemic, where we'll look at how different religious communities have been responding to the global crisis, including a worrying rise of conspiracy theories and exclusive nationalist and religious narratives. The intro song this week is Soul Searching by Jairus, and the closing music is Where the Moon Shines Bright by Kara Square. You can find a link to both songs in the show notes for this episode. As always, Thanks for joining me for another episode of The End of the World, and I'll see you again soon. I wanna dance under the stars tonight. I wanna love till my heart's delight. I wanna sing until the dawn's first light. I wanna breathe. Where the air smells sweet I want to walk With no shoes upon my feet I want to pass doors Open all up and down the street I want to hear 300 million hearts Beating with one beat